Welcome to Substances. Today, we're speaking with Ava Mirkovic, a translator, interpreter, and entrepreneur. She worked for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague while it was ongoing in the early 2000s. In that role, she worked with cases that tried criminals who were accused of committing torture, rape, and other act of violence that marred Yugoslavia during the 1990s. Today, we talk with Ava about her past, the technicalities of her work, and the importance of remembering the past in order to pave a path for a more peaceful future. We hope you enjoy the show. for speaking to us today. Can you start off by telling us about yourself, your academic background and um, your career so far? Yeah, mm, that's a bit complicated, but mm. okay, let's try. <laughs> I was born in Yugoslavia and uh, I studied Yugoslav literature until 92. Then I went to Amsterdam and continued and finished Slavic literature and translation in Amsterdam. Um, then I worked as interpreter and translator in Holland for Dutch. I was court interpreter for Dutch at the time and uh, also worked with uh, puppet theater, so I worked with kids. Um, but of course, it was not, not, um, not everything. At the end of the 90s, in the 99, there was a bombing of uh, Serbia at the time, so basically slowly the end of the Balkan Wars. And that brought me also closer to the thought of maybe applying as interpreter at the tribunal, International Criminal Tribunal for Reform Yugoslavia in Hague. Since I lived in Amsterdam, which is only one hour from there, I went there. So I think we can then later talk a bit more into depth about that one. And um, after two years at the tribunal, I moved to Germany, worked in the publishing, and um, then decided that I would like to move back more to research. So I did the Master at the Free University, East European Studies, and was uh, doing book reviewing and uh, research on Roma as the biggest European minority. And since then, uh, lots of different things. So you mentioned that mm -hmm. you worked um, as a translator and an interpreter mm -hmm. for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia right. in The Hague. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to our listeners what this tribunal specifically focused on, who was involved, i.e. judges, um, attorneys, and the background? Um, right, yes, I, I worked at the tribunal from 2000 until 2002. Um, I was um, working with um, attorneys from uh, the UK, US, um, Canada and Australia and I um, was involved in nine cases, nine different detainees, one of them including also Ms. Plavšić. The system of the tribunal basically, okay, to maybe to go one step back, a tribunal was established in 1997 
and that was the first tribunal that was founded after the Nuremberg and Tokyo. Um, I would also mention that there is also another tribunal um, in Arusha for the crimes um, uh, against the Tutsis um, in Rwanda. Um, so basically these two were active and are still active. Talking about the tribunal in The Hague, there are no more fugitives, so all those who were indicted were also brought to justice. Um, they, uh, who have been accused as guilty, proven guilty, are um, uh, serving their sentences in 14 countries in Europe. Some of them were released. And um, actually, the most important thing to know about the tribunal, and I think it's very often <laughs> a cause for misunderstandings, is the tribunal is always um, looking at the individual responsibility. So it's very often been misunderstood as uh, trying to uh, proclaim one ethnic group or a nation as guilty, which is definitely not the case. The tribunal was uh, trying people for um, great breaches of Geneva Convention, uh, war crimes and genocide. And maybe <laughs> it's interesting for the listeners also to know, um, it's um, since we are all women here, <laughs> um, most of them were men who were tried at the tribunal. The only woman um, who was really a high-ranking person uh, in Bosnian-Serbian uh, Republic of Srpska, is Lidana um, Plavšić, and um, she's also the only one who took responsibility for what she did. So most of them um, pleaded at the beginning of the of their case uh, as not not guilty. So she's one of the few who um, openly apologized to um, the victim. Does she have a lighter sentence because she openly apologized? Uh, definitely, okay. definitely. But I mean, nevertheless, I think lots of them um, did uh, try to get a, a lower sentence and uh, still um, did not put it in such words. Far from it that I don't think that she should serve uh, her sentence. I mean, she served her sentence and... Uh, is free again. That's, uh, I'm not talking about guilt. Mm -hmm. I think they will live with this guilt until mm -hmm. the rest of their day. So it's, it's a totally different uh, thing. It's more that um, as, a, as a statement, I think it's important for people in Republics of Srpska and in Serbia to um, be aware of that. There is also one specific thing about the tribunal. It's a combination of common and continental law. So it's, it's a huge uh, mix of uh, two uh, judicial systems, which made it quite difficult to um, find a way how to ensure um, all parties being satisfied. The judge, Richard May, he died. He was also uh, the key judge um, in the trial against Milosevic. He did a lot for example, that uh, rape is included as a crime against humanity. But maybe not to go too deep into this, um, what was important when I think about my work is that um, the, the winning combination for all the detainees, so to say, was um, to have a, a local attorney, so from Serbia, Bosnia, or Croatia, 
um, and someone who knew the common law, so Anglo-Saxon. Uh, so basically my work was primarily to, to simultaneously interpret between the two attorneys or between them and the council or at the tribunal between different parties with the council and to translate the documentation. Mm -hmm. How or or why were you selected um, for this position? Okay, well once I applied for it, <clears throat> I went through an extensive uh, testing. At the beginning I thought there were quite a few people whom I knew who were working at the tribunal. It's important to know tribunal is organized on, on, on three pillars. One is the chamber, judges, one is the registry, and one is the prosecution. So registry is the one that uh, serves <laughs> both. And um, since I did at the secondary school uh, English and French and translation, I went uh, to further level of testing. <laughs> so I did not stay at the level that I kind of was aiming for, basically to work for the registry, general, and uh, read the, the documentation and made summaries. But then they went a step further, so they tested me, and then I did uh, tests in uh, simultaneous and consecutive interpreting, and um, when it was all over, they said, thank you very much, we'll let you know, and they were silent. It was nothing. <laughs> and then like two, three months later, I got a telephone call from an attorney saying, could you please be here in one hour? <laughs> and oh it gosh. was really, it was really very funny because I mean, I was in Amsterdam, so it wasn't possible at all. So we had to arrange another appointment and um, then I met them and then they started talking. This legal language using this mm. legal language, which I didn't know if I'm going to work at the tribunal or not. I, I had no idea. I didn't have any feedback. So at the beginning, that was learning by doing. So it was very mm. intensively uh, reading the literature, and then, um, but I mean, all the all the defense lawyers were really super helpful, and it worked really well. I coached you maybe during the beginning of your period of working there to make sure that your translations and interpretation were objective? No, I was just thrown into cold water oh. and that's it. So there was no, um, there was no assistance. There was no uh, really translator or interpreter helping me in the first time. It was like me being there and um, that's it. <laughs> Did you have any databases to use while um, interpreting? I um, Simultaneous interpreting, not the consecutive. So basically, you can imagine if two of you are speaking, yeah. and while you are speaking, I'm next to you, and I'm just talking, and the other way around. Yeah. So it's just a different type of mental <laughs> work. What we basically see on TV when politicians are trying to speak, um, but they speak different languages, there's always yeah. that one person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can go already to the next question um, about the, the object being objective during the translation and um, it's not possible to think whether you're objective or not because you are you're in the middle of it so you don't think you you, you have no possibility to influence anything because um, I wouldn't call it a trance mm. but you are not really present it may basically you do Just the computer work yeah. <laughs> in a way afterwards yeah. you forgot 
Um, yes, sometimes I don't remember everything I translated, okay. that's true. <laughs> so if you can comment on this, before when you were going through all this rigorous testing to see mm -hmm. if you would be um, the translator and, and interpreter, did they have kind of an objectivity test to see if that would be, if you could be a candidate? As you mentioned, you go into a trance and you can't influence it, but right. beforehand, did they test you? Well, they, they tested uh, extensively. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I did uh, translations with or without a uh, dictionary. I did translations uh, between the two persons. I did uh, simultaneous and consecutive uh, translation tests. So the, on basis of that, they also did it. And I guess also based on that, that I also studied translation at school. And um, I mean, I, I never got uh, a, a clear feedback why was I employed. The only thing is that what I realized then later on is that the, the defense lawyers, because I was working for defense, not for the prosecution, is uh, that they have a pool of interpreter and translator whom they can use. And it's up to them who they want to contact. So if they were not satisfied with the translation, then they would contact someone else. Okay, so it was primarily a skill-based testing. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. thank you. And how many languages were um, used in the tribunal? Um, English, French, and uh, BCS, <laughs> Boston Serving yes. Sorry. Can you talk a little bit just about like the state of the work, like how, so first of all, like how long would you interpret and translate for it during set times? And then also just like mentality at the end of the day, like how was your stress levels? How was that two years of your life? Well, the thing is, um, maybe to start from the beginning, uh, my colleagues who work in the booth, who mm -hmm. were working in the court, they did it 20 minutes. Okay. So 20 minutes and the new one would start and then we would exchange. But um, as it is, the freelancers, mm -hmm. which I was, I wasn't uh, employed uh, with a contract. I mean, I didn't have a contract, but it's a freelance contract. And um, I was there to assist them. So basically, if they want to discuss something, they're talking for an hour, for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And then I have to cut and say, sorry, I can't anymore. Yeah. So it's like, then it stopped. But it could also happen that they talk and then they go through some documents and then you you can, you know, take a break. Or they have to go and eat and then we all eat together. Or we drive to the prison or we go to Bosnia. So then you visit one witness and then you drive to the other. And But I mean, there was no rule which is also difficult because they were also very busy and they also had their schedules and um, for me it was also very exciting because I mean for me it was first time that they really officially did it I mean before that it was like testing it you know doing it with friends or in English mm -hmm. I mean for Dutch it was a different thing so yeah that's that's one part of course I was totally dead at the end of the day I was like a zombie it was also, um, nevertheless, through all this documentation that I had to also translate, which I took with me home, uh, all these testimonies and uh, sitting in the court and listening to the witnesses and everything, it was emotionally very uh, hard for me because I, I, I left in 92. Then I had my own <laughs> existential problems. I, I got my state per permit five years later. And when I already finished studying and everything, and um, so we are already in year 97. 
So lots of that what happened on the territory of former Yugoslavia, I wasn't really aware until I started working at the tribunal, which meant that I had the migraines two, three times a week. <laughs> and that was also the main reason why after two years I said, um, I, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's incredibly important because I have family all over Yugoslavia and all these discussions can get very emotional with friends, with acquaintances, with whomever, but it's a totally different way of communication when you have facts and when you know uh, what really happened. When it's black and white, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I have a question. Was mm -hmm. this secret? Was this like, um, were you, was your name released to the public at the time of the tribunal in case anyone would try to influence you after hours or anything? I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I know that they have protected uh, the witnesses, for sure. I never really checked it. Okay. Because, I mean, I know I was later working for the European Commission as evaluator uh, for literary translations. And there I know that it was published. But, I mean, it's for the transparency, but at the tribunal, I believe. <laughs> You're safe, so that's yeah, all that matters. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. No, but we are also obliged... Um, to uh, not release any information confidentiality we have to sign so yeah so earlier you mentioned that all of the fugitives have are like paying their time and stuff right now mm -hmm. but the tribunal still is going on can you mm -hmm. talk about like why exactly it's still going on and what's happening now today well, it's going on because um, there are still a few trials going on. So when they now finish, okay. basically Mladic, then it's going to close. Okay. Uh, however, uh, there is this International Criminal Court, mm -hmm. uh, which could in a way take over if there might be any new cases. What tribunal tried to do is to transfer the responsibility to each country. However, it didn't always work well because sometimes witnesses would disappear or change suddenly their testimony. And this is uh, a sad part about um, the aim of the tribunal because a tribunal wanted to bring to justice those who committed crimes. And I think everyone who is familiar with the history of wars know that not everyone is put in prison. And this is also here the case. So um, I think it's partially a problem that we don't have civil society who uh, are, we have individuals who work in the civil society to do something about it. And there were lots of, um, for example, initiatives where those who were fighting in the war in Serbia and Croatia would meet. So the soldiers would meet and talk about their trauma. And this was the way how to find peace with each other. But it wasn't enough. <laughs> so I think that's why um, tribunal, what they aim for, I think they have managed to do. Okay. So those who were tried there were basically, uh, who were indicted. They didn't die, <laughs> which happened with several, were brought to justice. And those who are interested can learn and read about it. And it's up to the society to deal with the situation. And I mean, I don't want to judge anyone. It's very difficult to talk about justice in a society 
that has lots of them who were active in the war still in power and not in all countries but in some if you have corruption if you have poverty i mean this globalization is partially also the reason why the war happened and now we deal with the uh, economic problems <laughs> so i don't know how interested are people really now in dealing with something what happened 20 years ago but the problems still live on. We recently also interviewed like a mm. panel of people who are living in school. They're from Serbia and also <clears throat> Kosovo. Yeah. And that was the biggest thing. That's like it was their childhood. And even though it directly affected their parents, it still affects all of society. So from your point of view, what do you think like the grassroots levels of society should do when the leaders may still have been involved in the past cases? What can the people, what can the citizens do? But I mean, the, 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 the thing is, there are wonderful projects which were organized if we then talk about Kosovo. And there were people from different villages who came and Serbs and Albanians, they were trying to build something together. Then there was no more money for the project. So those who were leading the project left. And then those who believed in the project were laughing stock. So the problem with projects is that they are uh, limited to a certain amount of time and I think it's that all this money that was poured that disappeared aided to the corruption in a way would have been better invested if people were helped to build something together and then when those who are leading the project leave they can build on it as it is it's very tricky if you have um, people in power who are very manipulative, like what you have in, in Serbia and um, in Bosnia, both. And now the other day, I think again, um, nationalists won in Kosovo. So I don't know what's the answer. I think just uh, don't give up trying as an individual. I mean, I, I know, for example, my sister, she was uh, studying management and tourism. Mm -hmm. They organized um, like events and they were inviting students and from Kosovo and from Bosnia and from all over. They invited the uh, media, no one came. <laughs> so I mean, you know, it's happening. And um, I know, for example, for Serbia and Croatia, uh, Serbia has special ties with Russia. Russia needs a lot of import of food. Croatia doesn't have a special deal with Russia, so they combine and they are, you know, they are working now together. They, the, the, the economic part, I think, can always unite them. Like the artists, the actors, when you have the same language, they realize they're going to earn less money if they only work in Serbia or only in Croatia, so they are touring all around. However, it's different for Kosovo <laughs> because yeah. it's a different language. But even there, you have lots of initiatives in the culture where they go also not only to Kosovo but also to Albania mm -hmm. and they they also organize uh, uh, theater plays or readings like book readings and stuff from uh, Albanian colleagues from Kosovo Albania but if the public doesn't see it then um, it doesn't have that big influence I think what Bernie Sanders <laughs> was saying like this grassroots you have to keep on doing and eventually it will pay off. I mean, what Corbyn was doing in the UK, even Guardian was against him, everyone was against him, and he didn't give up, and now he almost made it. Good answer. What has been your most rewarding experience as a translator and interpreter, and why? Yeah, I was I was thinking about that question. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's very tricky, you know, when you talk about genocide, uh, 
war crimes and uh, everything what happened there. I mean, rewarding, not in a positive sense, but rewarding nevertheless. Um, I had the chance to see uh, or to be present when former President Milosevic uh, was in prison or detained, and um, the attorney with whom I worked at the time was talking to him. They didn't need an interpreter, so I wasn't involved. And his family was visiting and stuff, so he was like you and me. He was like any guy you could see on the street. There was nothing about him. So it's like what Hannah Arendt said, that's the danger, that you can't recognize who is really a, a criminal and who not. And from one side, it tells you, okay, um, I mean, it could be negative, don't trust anyone, but on the other side, it could also be, you know, have a dialogue, talk to people, and through dialogue, you will get to know him and know who he is or she is. We have to rely on ourselves <laughs> for judgment. Thank you so much for tuning in to this very, very important topic. Ava not only helped bring justice to the Yugoslavian war criminals and their victims, but she also continues to make a difference in the world today through her workshops in local community schools around Berlin as a refugee educator. To better understand the Yugoslavian wars, Ava recommends the book Violence as a Generative Force by Mac Berkholz, as well as They Would Never Hurt a Fly by Slavenka Drakulic. Both of these books explain how people can be driven to commit atrocities and help outline the Yugoslavian war. Thank you for listening. This summer, Ava also embarked on biking over 1,400 kilometers from Berlin to Serbia with her son. This trip was meant to show her son not just how long refugees travel for, but also raising awareness for her cause, called Four Wheels for a Book. You can follow her cause on Facebook, and we reference to it on our website at www.sub-stances.com. If you have any comments or questions, write to us at dosageofrepartee at gmail.com. Together, we hope to bring awareness to some of these atrocities and focus more on the human rights of the future. Until next week.